Well, good morning, Mount Hermon. Good to see you all today. And you know, just as a follow-up to my brothers who were playing here, if you missed that concert last night, you missed an incredible, incredible blessing. So uh, thanks again uh, to Dick and to Steve and to his very talented sisters who sang with him last night. We're, you don't know this, but I'm working on putting together a Spanish tour, you know, of, so we're working on some things. Well, good to see you all this morning, and I hope you had a uh, wonderful night rest, and uh, what a beautiful day today. Did I mention that I collect things? I don't know if I've mentioned that, but I collect things, and uh, one of the things that I collect is I collect uh, strange newspaper clippings, and in particular, the titles. Sometimes they're referenced as headliners. And I have a warped sense of humor, and so I just want to share some of my warpedness with you here this morning again. So this is what I'm talking about, is make sure we have a pulse check here this morning as we get started. So this is a little strange. Parents keep kids home to protest school closure. It's a little strange to me. I get it. I like the delayed laughter, by the way, too. It's, it's we're just warming up in the morning, and you know, we're going to, come on, brain, get going. Here we go. Um, this one was a little odd. Uh, safety meeting ends in accident. That's a little strange. Okay. Federal agents raid gun shop. They find weapons. <laughs> Brilliant. I like that. Um, this one just struck me. I had a friend send this one to me. A little odd. Police arrest everyone on February the 22nd. <laughs> Okay, I'll let you think about this one. I'll just kind of leave it out there. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that was really entertaining. Can you imagine that? It, ha it has now occurred, you know. I mean, what, what else are they going to say about the lunar eclipse on the radio? There you go. The miracle cure kills the fifth patient. That's strange. Okay, I don't even have to make any comments about this one right there. If they can't figure that one out. Okay, I am not making fun of anyone, I promise, okay? But they surely could have come up with a better title than that. I'm not, I'm not making fun of anybody, but they needed to work on that one a little bit. Well, of course it does. <laughs> Babies to blame. <laughs> okay, you gotta, you gotta have an editor here. So far, they have determined that the crash occurred when the plane struck the ground. It's not... Hold on, we got a few more. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you for clearing that one up. Okay. Sorry, just a couple of more. Okay, read this one closely. An Australian army vehicle where 74,000 has gone missing after being painted with camouflage. Ooh, ooh. Oh, my goodness. Man shot with arrow and head. Feels great after it's removed. That's good. 
scientists to kill ducks to see why they're dying. That's, that's brilliant. Okay, that one's just wrong, right? Okay, now I actually make it a habit. <laughs> that's horrible, isn't it? It's horrible, Greg. That one should have been filtered, I know, I apologize. Okay, I actually make it a practice of reading in the newspaper the corrections area. Do you, do you do that? You know where they make a mistake? Okay, these are, these are my all-time favorites. Listen to this one. A headline on an item in the February 5th edition of the Inquirer Bulletin incorrectly stated stolen groceries. It should have read homicide. <laughs> um. Okay, we got another one. Look at this one. In a recent recipe for salsa, published recently, one of the ingredients was misstated. The correct ingredient is two teaspoons of cilantro instead of cement. <laughs> Can you imagine someone, I'm going down to the depot. It says cement. I don't know. That's horrible. Worker suffers leg pain after Crane drops 800-pound ball on his head. Okay, last one, last one. Do we have anybody um, from Mississippi? Anybody, last chance. Good. Mississippi's literacy program shows improvement. M-I-S-S-I-S-S-I-P-P-I. Okay, it's time to get serious. Let's pray. Lord, thank you so very much for laughter. Thank you for friends. Thank you for a beautiful place like Mount Hermon where we can come and uh, pause in life and spend time in your word. And we can have fun and festivities. And, and as I said yesterday, or Lord, on Tuesday, it is so good to be part of the family of God. What a blessing, and we are very privileged people. And so uh, what an opportunity we've had to worship and song this week, uh, to listen to those that you have given incredible gifts and abilities to help lead us. As we have opened up your word and your servants have challenged us and your word has come alive and has spoken to us, what a privilege, Father, for us to get to do something like this, for us to make memories with families and friends, with children and, and parents and grandparents and all those stats that we saw about the busyness of this life and this world in which we live to realize that we've had an opportunity this week to, again, hit that pause button and to hopefully reset our focus and our thinking. And so, Lord, as we continue on in the book of Jonah, help us again here this morning as we start a new day to see things from your word, may it come alive and challenge our hearts all over again as if for the very first time. Lord, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that we, as your children, may be equipped for every good work that you have in store for us. So, Father, help us today to have open ears. May our hearts be very pliable, even as Barry challenged us this morning in his prayer. Lord, help us to be moldable 
through the working of your spirit in our lives so that uh, we will be different, to be more conformed like our Savior. That is our prayer even this morning in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Well, I started off on Monday telling you that story about our little daughter, and that theme works its way through this powerful little book where she stood there asking the question, had she grown physically? And I moved that into the spiritual realm of asking, why do big people stop growing spiritually? And I have posed for us, it is because we stop pursuing the heart of God and allowing God's very spirit that indwells us to lead us to what he longs for in our walk. And I have thrown out there for us as we have been, again, plowing through this little book, something that I've just called as growth indicators and that picture of us needing to stand at attention every day, every week, at every season in our lives, asking, Lord, are we growing like you want us to grow? And this book is a literary masterpiece, and it is meant to challenge our hearts. And so as we stepped into the book of Jonah, we realized that it was a very precarious season of time in the life of that northern kingdom of Israel in that time of Jeroboam II, in where other prophets of God, contemporary to Jonah, in particular Hosea and Amos, were challenging the people to have that that unrelenting uh, commitment to pursuing God, the living God, the God of Israel, and having no other gods except for him. And, and again, as we were challenged this week, the flip side of that coin of, of treating one another through that godly love, that, that vertical love being displayed horizontally. And that is why, again, Jesus made the statement, right? What are the greatest commandments? And it's love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And the second is like it. It's the flip side of that displayed in love to others. And that is going on in the northern kingdom. And and they are experiencing a time of growth geographically. and, And they are experiencing a certain level of growth economically. But their hearts are becoming cold and callous toward the things of God. And so we started off in the book, and and I I asked us to see that one of the great traits, literarily, of how this book is put together is the use of irony. And and we saw how vibrant that is, even in the opening lines, where Yonah, his name, Jonah, the prophet, actually means dove, and his genealogical name sounds like the word for truth. And as we begin to see his character unfold in this powerful little book, we realize that he is anything but what his name actually means. And he was given a word of instruction from the Lord, like all of the other prophets, to pull up and go and, and present the word of the God in Nineveh into the heart of the Assyrian Empire, but our prophet rebelled. And while other prophets heard the word of the Lord and went, Yonah ran away from the presence of the living God of Israel. And we asked ourselves the question, why was it that he did not want to go? And maybe it was because of the sins of the Assyrians. 
But there's something that is brewing underneath, and we will begin to see more of that even in chapter 3, but we got glimpses of it back in chapter 1, that as he went down to Joppa, he prayed to Christ, he got on the boat, and he went down and down and down and down. We had our first growth indicator, life that is growing spiritually is moving towards God's commands, not away from them, regardless of the difficulty. But God was not done, and he was chasing after his prophet in spite of his rebellion, And Jonah was eventually asked, who are you? And he said, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the God who made the sea and the dry land. And even the Gentile sailors could see that there was something amiss here. And Edwin Good phrased it. He said, Jonah's theology was unexceptional, but like so much theology, it made no difference to his actions. And they themselves could see the incongruity between what he was saying and what he was doing. That led us to our second growth indicator. A life that is growing spiritually shows a consistency between words and works, between what we say and what we do. And Jonah was not living a consistent life. And as the story unfolded and they tried to save his life, we were astounded at the contrast between Jonah and the Gentiles. Jonah, who was called by God to go and bring a life-giving message to the Gentiles. Here it was, and how ironic was that, that the Gentiles were now attempting to save his life. Jonah was eventually thrown overboard, but God preserved his prophet. And that growth indicator number three, life that is growing spiritually exhibits a testimony to the non-believing world, not the other way around. And although Jonah was not living that, God preserved his prophet. And we, sir, we saw in Jonah chapter 1, verse 17, that final verse that was a hinge, if you recall. But the Lord provided a great fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was inside the fish three days and three nights. That led us to another growth indicator, a life that is growing spiritually acknowledges and responds to the grace of God. And inside that fish, Jonah packaged together, if you recall, on Tuesday, a beautiful psalm of thanksgiving. And if you remember, verses 2 through 9 in particular, in Jonah chapter 2, it follows it to the T. It is a very distinct structure of a psalm of thanksgiving. But one of the things that maybe surprised us is that we realized that the words were not Jonah's. He was pulling from his hymn book of faith, if you will, the Hebrew hymn book, the Psalms, and he packaged together his story. And that led us to growth indicator number five, which was a life that is growing spiritually knows and applies the word of God. And remember, I gave you that horrible pun. And I said, after we ran all the way through it, I said, something smells a little fishy here. Go ahead, say it. Boo, oh, that's horrible. Because what I was wanting us to see is that when you pull these two growth indicators together, we realize that it's possible to acknowledge the grace of God, but not respond to the grace of God. And we realize that it's possible to know the word of God, but not apply the word of God. And I am fully convinced that as the author is weaving this story together, he he suckers us in. He dupes us in many ways to see and go, oh yeah, look at Yonah. He, He gets it. 
God saves him and he says all of these right words and he proclaims it and he, boy, he knows the word, doesn't he? But there's something that's going on here because I focused our attention, if you recall, on Jonah chapter 2 verse 10. And the Lord commanded the fish and it vomited Jonah onto the dry land. That is such a powerful word in the text that when the Hebrew ear heard it, it drew their attention to a much larger concept. We were working with the, the team here in terms of the recording of these sessions. We titled session number two, Vomit. <laughs> because it is a graphic picture of realizing that the prophet, again, who seemingly had it all together on this salvific moment... But we're going to see, even in chapter 3, that his heart is far from God. And the Lord commanded the fish, and it vomited Jonah onto dry land. And I heightened that for us to see, that I am fully convinced it is an editorial comment by God concerning Jonah's confession. Remember chapter 1, verse 9? His promises and vows, chapter 2, verse 9. By the way, in chapter 2, verse 9, you can go back on your own. And when he talks about making vows and promises to make sacrifices, guess what Yonah never does anywhere in the text, friends? Nowhere. Oh, the Gentile sailors did. It's one of those purposeful moments of omission. Jonah could talk it, but he wasn't walking it. And that led us to realize what James Watts said is very true. The prayer, chapter 2 of the book of Jonah, ignores the essential issue between the prophet and God. And that is Jonah's refusal of a prophetic commission. Friends, don't miss that important fact. If you miss it, I'm not sure you can understand the book of Jonah. The prophet never confesses his sin, his rebellious heart of running from God. That led us to our last growth indicator that we ended with on Tuesday morning. A life that is growing spiritually confesses sin, not pious words of religiosity. And that leads us to Jonah chapter 3. So if you have your Bibles, and I hope and pray you do, or turn on your phone or your iPad and scroll to it, in Jonah chapter 3, it starts off and it reads, The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I give you. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Now, it is Almost the exact same phrasing that we had in Jonah chapter 1, isn't it? The word of the Lord came to Jonah, Jonah, son of Amittai. Rise, go to the great city. It says in chapter 1, we remember the story well, but Jonah arose to flee to Tarshish. But here we are in chapter 3, and it seems like it's a redo. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message that I gave you. And it says in a very short, pointed phrase, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord. Now, it is actually in the Hebrew text 
a very punctiliar statement. It's like this. The word of the Lord came to Yonah a second time. He did it. He did it. I'm going to pose us a question. Do you know what reluctant obedience is? Anybody ever heard of reluctant obedience? Yeah, because sometimes we're all masters at it, right? Reluctant obedience. Let me tell you a little bit more about my family. I showed you a picture earlier on. These are our kids. They all need haircuts. The boys do, anyway. Look at them. These are our kids. And uh, Jacob, who was in the pink shirt, and Joseph, who was in the blue shirt, we don't know what happened there. It's actually kind of funny. Jacob is like big and stout and muscular, and Joseph is tall and skinny. He's like six foot two and a half, pushing six three, and he messes up all the family photos for us now. Okay, he's a big tall guy. Well, Jacob and Joseph have grown up in the same room together, best of friends. Now, they're about three and a half, four years apart, and Jacob obviously has always been older and stronger. Okay, your kids and your grandkids may have been and are perfect. Okay, ours are and were not. <laughs> and so they came from very imperfect parents. And so these two <laughs> loving boys uh, grew up in the same room. And on occasion, they would get into brotherly love spats. Okay, also translated as a knockdown, drag out fight. And dad would have to come into the room, right? Now, back when they were little, oh, I'm getting a lot of head nods over here. Anybody with me on this? Said, oh, man, brother, knockdown, drag out fights are like legendary. And so I would come into the room after I'm hearing, you know, bodies crash into walls or ceiling fans come ripping down out of the ceiling. And I would come in and I'd break it up. And this is what I'd do when they were little. I can no longer do that. Parents have to change their, their tactics as their kids get over because now they would both kill me. You know, the day Joseph dunked on me, I was like, it's all over. You know, we'll never do this again. But when they were little, I'd come in, and here's what I'd do. I'd put an arm around one and an arm around the other. It's a good dad thing here. And I, we'd kind of sit there and all hang out and look at one another, okay? And I'd say, after this big fight, you know, and picture it with me. You got a little trickle of blood coming down the nose. You know, veins are popping out. You know, they're still gnarly. <laughs> and I'd, I'd look at, and generally I'd start with, with Jacob. And I'd say, Jacob, tell your brother you love him. Isn't that horrible? And so here's what he'd happen. This is what you work with. He'd go, I love you. Hey, good job, Jacob. We're making progress, okay? Now, i got Joseph over here. Now, Joseph was younger, and if you're younger, you know who you are out there. You're a survivor, <laughs> right? You grew up in this, and you know it. And so I'd say, Joseph, not to be outdone, even in this moment, Joseph, he'd look back, and he'd go, I love you more, <laughs> you know? Okay, so here's the thing. If I was to let them go, do you know what would happen? Like, Two tigers in a cage, you know. They would just go right back at it. But because I was there, I could physically restrain them and I could, listen close, make them obey. That's reluctant obedience. 
They didn't want to do it. Now, you know as a parent or even as a grandparent, we all know where we really want to go with this, right? I'm really praying for their hearts because something's wrong. And I'm really trying to get down deep into the issue. I could physically make them do the right thing at that season of life. They would reluctantly obey. Friends, I want you to see here in Jonah chapter 3 that Jonah goes, but his heart is far from God. The way even it's posed at the beginning of chapter 3, it says, the word of the Lord came a second time, he went. See, friends, I think that leads us actually to a growth indicator. Number seven, as we start off, and we'll have three more today. Growth indicator number seven, a life that is growing spiritually responds to God's commands in total and complete obedience. And I'm using some words there to help us realize total and complete. When God has something for us, it's not just the matter of us saying, well, okay, I guess I'll do it. I'm going to grump about it. But there's something more that the Lord wants from us. It's just like a parent. He longs for us to have a heart that is in full, complete submission to him. Not just reluctant, okay. I wonder how many times in our lives that the Lord leads us and directs us and challenges us, but ultimately if he was to sit back and write the story on that one, he'd say, well, they did it. Versus, my child listened, and they submitted a heart and then obeyed. That is total and complete obedience. We'll get into the text here. It says, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord, and he went to Nineveh. Now, Nineveh was a very important city. A visit required three days. It is a perplexing statement. We don't fully know what that means. Because if you were to go and look up and see the description and even the archaeological remains and what has been posed in regard to what was Nineveh, the walls and the city. There's no way that it would have taken three full days to do that. However, frequently in the ancient Near East, when cities are described, it's not just the city proper, but there is a larger jurisdiction administratively that goes around it. So as an example, in Dallas, Texas, we have the, the city proper, Dallas. But we reference Dallas in a much larger area. I actually live in Forney, Texas. Okay? But frequently when people ask me, where are you from? You know what I say? I say, I'm, I'm from Dallas. Because that is the geographic identity. I think what's going on here in the text is that the author is wanting us to see the significance of Nineveh, and in a world in which you communicated verbally and there were no texts and tweets and digital media that was being broadcast, Jonah didn't call a press conference on CNN and broadcast it so everybody could hear the word of the Lord. He took a very succinct message and went from place to place to place to place. And I think that's what the author is wanting us to see. 
But I also, again, love the way that Edwin Good phrases it. He says, in the author's mind, Nineveh is not a quantity but a quality. Not a mere metropolis but an immorality. He takes the symbol of the ancient world's most impressive evil, magnifies it, intensifies it by mass, and sends his timorous prophet into the middle of it. He's wanting us to see that Jonah is a very significant city. And it says this in verse 4. On the first day, Jonah started into the city. He proclaimed, here's his message, 40 more days and Nineveh, I'm reading from the NIV, will be overturned. Now, how's that for a short message? It's five words in the Hebrew text. In most English versions, it's like seven or eight. Now, some of you are thinking, man, wow, if you Dallas guys would preach like eight-word sermons, man, we could, be, we could whip through these things, couldn't we? It's a real short message here. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. Some of your translations phrase it this way. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, I taught you a little Hebrew. We're going to learn a little more this morning, okay? So I want you to repeat after me. This is a great word. Hapak. Okay, now, Hebrew is such a good language, okay? Hapak. Okay, now on the K, it's a very guttural language. Okay, we heard a little Spanish last night. It's very fluid, okay? But hapak, okay, it's a very guttural. It's a great language because you almost get to hack one on your neighbor, okay? So I want you one more time. Hapak. Hapak. Okay, this is a classic word. This is such a rich text, and there are many Hebrew puns at play in it. And this word hapak is fascinating for this reason. It has two, and only two, distinct meanings in the text. Meaning number one, the way that Jonah meant it. Hapak, he says here, 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. That's why in some of our translations it says, Nineveh will be destroyed. Okay, you know what we're talking about? We're talking about fire from God, hellfire and brimstone coming down. As a matter of fact, guess what? That word is used in Genesis chapter 19, verse 25, in reference to Sodom and Gomorrah being destroyed, being overthrown, being overturned, dumped upside down because of God's judgment upon them. Jonah goes into the city. The way the sentence is structured, he comes in there and he says, Yarborough paraphrased version, okay? Hot diggity dog. God is going to zap you. Kaboom, bye-bye. I mean, he comes in and he just unloads it. You want to know what the other meaning in Scripture is? For hapak? It's used in Exodus chapter 7, verse 15. Moses' staff changed. The water of the Nile changed. In Hosea chapter 11, it says the Lord's heart Changed. It wasn't destroyed. It means that it moved because of who God is. Do you see what's happening here in the text? Jonah meant it one way. Spoiler alert, what's going to happen? They're not going to get destroyed, but their heart is going to change. It's one of those little words that the Hebrew ear, when they heard it, they're going, ah, oh, Jonah means it one way. 
But oh, how ironic. Something totally different is going to occur. Hapak. It's a great little Hebrew word. Get back in the text. So Jonah gives this little message here. 40 more days and Nineveh will be overturned. Notice the parallel. Listen to this. Jonah receives the word of the Lord. The Hebrew text says he obeyed, but not really. Reluctant obedience. He preaches a message. How succinct is the answer? It says the Ninevites believed God. Friends, it is paralleled on purpose in the text for us to say, you can have the right response, but in the right response, you can have the wrong response. And we all know that is true of our own walk of faith. Jonah goes in and preaches and means it one thing, and much to our surprise, these evil, wicked Ninevites, this horrific nation of Assyria who was so far from what God longed for. They hear the word of the Lord and it says, again, the Ninevites believed God. Absolutely amazing. Look at what it says here. They declared to fast and all of them from the greatest to the least, they put on sackcloth. When the news reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. Pause. Would you do me a favor? It's okay to write in your Bible. Would you circle that word, he rose? You see, friends, we've heard that word before in this text because the author is playing with words on purpose. Let me point it out to you. You're familiar with it. You remember when the the opening words of Yahweh come to Jonah? The Lord tells Jonah to arise, to get up. You remember the captain repeated the words of Yahweh? You remember that? Jonah's asleep in the boat, and the the Gentile sailor captain comes to him and says, get up. He repeats the words of Yahweh. The Lord tells Jonah to arise and go to Nineveh a second time. Jonah, the text says, arises, and he went to Nineveh. The last time this is used in the text is right here. Because someone that really hears and understands, oh, you can get it and go through the motion, but we're going to see the difference, listen to this, between the prophet of God who hears and responds to the word of God, and listen to this, the king of Nineveh. When he hears it, he gets up and obeys with the heart that God longs to see. It's fascinating how the author chose to use words. Now, look at the pattern here. Look at the pattern. So it says again in verse 6, when the news reached the king of Nineveh, there are four very distinct things. It's very patterned in the Hebrew text. Here's what it says. He rose from his throne. He took off royal robes. He covered himself with sackcloth, and he sat down in the dust. One, two, three, four. Did you hear that? Actions of the king of Nineveh. He rises from his throne. Ancient Near East, when the king gets up, it is always a picture of seriousness. He takes off his royal robes. It's a picture of submission. The king, in his power, takes off his royalty in acknowledgement of the God of Israel and his word. Number three, he covers himself with sackcloth. 
seems a little strange to us, but always in the Old Testament, friends, it's a picture of repentance and last, but certainly not least, he sits in the dust. It's a picture of hopelessness. A picture of hopelessness. He rises from his throne, he takes off his royal robes, he covers himself with sackcloth, and he sits in the dust. Seriousness, submission, repentance, and hopelessness. Friends, that clearly leads us. The author is moving us there to growth indicator number eight. A life that is growing spiritually responds to God in humility, not in arrogance and pride. A life that is growing spiritually responds to God in humility, not in in arrogance and pride. It's helpful for us to not miss this point. Remember when I referenced this as Hebrew narrative, right? And there are narratival traits that in many of these books of the Bible, so Jonah and Ruth and Esther, and in a lot of the narrative sections of the patriarchs, they're all this rich with wordplay and structure and organization. It's masterful teaching. But one of the traits that we've already talked about in terms of narrative leader, literature, in particular Hebrew narrative literature, remember irony, and we've seen that all throughout the book, right? Um, another incredible use is that of satire. You know what satire is? Yeah, satire is the attempt to affect reform by ridicule of an idea, a person, or type of person, and it does make frequent use of irony. But it is confrontational. Friends, here's what we dare not miss. Remember what's going on back at home, back in the home country, back at the ranch, northern Israel, Jeroboam II, and we've been seeing that all along, that their heart is far from God. And God has sent his prophets to, to call the people back to repent. Listen to this. Oh, how God wished his own king of his own people, Jeroboam II, would respond as did the king of Nineveh. Oh, how God longed for his people who had his word that had all of the blessings, that had seen the parting of the Red Sea, had been provided manna, who had the quail, that had the provision of God, all the blessings. Oh, how he wished that they would respond as did the people of the Assyrian Empire at this moment. God put up a mirror in the picture that we see of his own people and his own prophet is so far and even in the reality of this story, he is beckoning them. And how satirical is that? Please, Jeroboam II. Have a heart of humility, as does the king of Nineveh. Get back to the text. Here's what happens. Verse 7, then he issued a proclamation. Don't get lost. Who's he? It's the king of Nineveh, right? Then he issued a proclamation in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, 
Do not let any man or beast, herd or flock, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so that we will not perish. Friends, I love chapter 3, verse 10. It moves all the way through, and Jonah proclaims in spite of his, uh, his, his stubborn heart. Well, there's a lesson in there on that topic, isn't there? Isn't it amazing that God chooses to use us and many times in spite of our stubborn, unrepentant hearts? And he uses Jonah anyway, and the, the king repents, and the people repent, and, and, and there is genuine humility, and we get a glimpse into the heart of God. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. Friends, God always responds to repentance. Always. Oh, we may suffer the consequences from our actions, but he always responds to repentance. He is a gracious and compassionate God slow to anger, abounding in love. We will see that when we get into chapter four in an amazing way. But right here at this moment, the people repent. And when God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, and I love this statement because it moves directly from chapter three, verse 10, into chapter four, verse one in our English text. And they're supposed to be meant to bring together. And so I love it. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he had compassion and did not bring upon them the destruction that he had threatened. And the prophet of God went home rejoicing because the Ninevites believed God and came into a living relationship with Yahweh, the God of Israel, who is compassionate. That's not what your text reads? Oh, yeah. But Yonah was greatly displeased and became angry. You see, friends, the storyline moves us into who this prophet really is. Remember irony? We've talked about it. All week long, the most unlikely candidate had received Yahweh's mercy. And now, the most likely candidate now rejects it. If I can give us a very literal translation of chapter 4, verse 1. Here's what it says, friends. But Jonah was greatly displeased and became angry. That's the NIV. Literally, it says, and it was an evil unto Jonah, a great evil, and it burned him. What if I told you in the Hebrew text that the words that are used for anger and burning, literally a fire, are the same word? Have you ever been so angry that it owns you, 
that it burns within, that it consumes you. It's all you can think about. It's your lens of life. We are given that picture of Yonah. And all of the sudden, this great moment had happened right in front of his eyes. And the text says it was an evil. The compassion of God, the same compassion that had been given to him, he now cannot let it go to others. A great evil, and it burned him. That takes us to our final growth indicator, number nine. A life that is growing spiritually loves non-believers well and pursues them. A life that is growing spiritually loves non-believers well and pursues them. One of the things, friends, that we are seeing here in the text is that It is the heart of God, the call of God to his people in all ages, in all dispensations, at all times, has always been for his people to be a light to the world. And I said it early on in anticipation of today. Let me tell you, friends, if you are a grace recipient, you are called to be a grace giver. You cannot have one without the other. A life that is growing spiritually loves non-believers well and pursues them. Anybody ever put on 3D goggles? Anybody in the room ever done that? It's kind of weird, isn't it? First time I did it, I fell over. You know, it's just weird. These are goggles, friends, that you can put on, and literally it transports you into another world. That's what you see, and your sensory overload there is fascinating because what you see and what you might or might not touch don't align, and it just flat out messes with your brain. I often wonder and think about the fact that we as believers, when our eyes have been opened, God has chosen to put on us another set of lens. And he has shown us what has led us here. And he longs for his children to see the world through his lens. And what we are confronted with here in the text is that Yonah, the prophet who had received the grace of God, he's taken off his God lens and he looks at people that he hates. And he took his eyes off of realizing that God's love for him requires him to love others just the way God loved him. See, friends, as we wrap this up, here are our questions that we have. Are we following God in total obedience? Is our response to God in humility? Or is it one like Israel had of entitlement? And a question for you and me personally, do you love the unlovely well? You see, friends, we're required to because that's the same love that God loved us. That while we were yet sinners, what? Christ died for us. You see, remember those funny headliners? I'm afraid at times that there is a narrative out there. You can rip it out of the newspaper. 
And I'm afraid at times it says something like this. Hard-hearted, arrogant Christ followers keep good news to themselves. May it not be. May it not be. Let's pray. Lord, we want to once again stand at that board and see where we are. We cannot do it by ourselves. We've been reminded of that this week, last night in particular by my brother. It's not a question of us putting more things into practice and more rigor and structure, and those things may be very healthy and beneficial, but we can do nothing without you. Help us even here this morning as we continue to think about where we are. Help us to realize that we are desperately dependent upon you. That the secret of growth in the Christian life is to realize when we can't and you can. Father, we see at times ourselves in the prophet Jonah. And it breaks us. It, it makes us weep. Lord, I know in my own life I see moments where I'm just doing things and I'm just like him. What a good week for me, for us, all of us here at Mount Hermon in this great beauty and fellowship, how we can once again regain clarity on who you've called us to be. Help us to stand at attention and draw a line and say, by grace, we're going to grow more today and tomorrow than we have in the past, not because of our own ability, because of the working of the Spirit spirit in our lives that you have given us as we are dead to sin but alive in Christ Jesus. We pray this in utter dependence by the power of your spirit in Jesus name. All of God's people said amen. amen. Have a good break. <laughs>